The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. In January, an attack by Iranian proxies in Jordan killed three American service members and injured more than 30 others. We mourn with their loved ones this incredible loss. The Biden administration's response was pragmatic, it was resolute, and given the loss of American life, it was entirely justified. U.S. strikes send a clear message that we will not be pushed out of the region by these attacks. From Syria to Yemen to Iraq to Lebanon, Iranian proxies are a serious, lethal threat to our allies globally, to our partners in the region, and the United States' national security interests. Hezbollah has as many as 150,000 rockets, some of them highly precise and sophisticated, pointed at Israel. Its elite forces on Israel's border continue to play a dangerous tit-for-tat game with the IDF. Iranian proxies have fired drones and rockets at American and coalition facilities more than 180 times since October the 17th. The Houthis in Yemen have wrecked habit on commercial shipping through the Red Sea using weapons provided by the Iran Islamic Revolutionary Guard. I want to thank Senator Murphy and Senator Young for the hearing they held yesterday on the subcommittee that dealt with the Houthi issues. Uh, and at that, at that hearing, I expressed my support for Senator Murphy and Senator Kane's concerns that there needs to be an AUMF in regards to our military operations in the Red Sea. But while Iran backs these groups, gives them weapons and training, Iran doesn't have complete command and control of their operations. That's, that makes this a very precarious situation, one that requires careful, clear-eyed American leadership. The risks of miscalculation would not only lead to another deadly attack against U.S. service members, it could lead to a full-scale regional war. The Biden administration has not taken the bait on every attack. Instead, it has focused on significantly degrading proxies' capabilities and interdicting their resupply. It is made clear that while the United States will do what is necessary to protect our people and interests, we do not seek a wider war in the Middle East or a direct confrontation with Iran. This hearing, I hope, will help us better understand Iran's intentions and how it is using its proxy network. There has been a lull on recent attacks in Syria and Iraq, but not in the Red Sea. Does Iran want to avoid an escalation? If so, to what extent do, it, do, do its proxies share that sentiment? or is it laying the groundwork for something else? As you walk us through the expert assessment of Ron's calculations, I'd like to hear what might have changed in recent months. Has the risks to U.S. personnel and facilities changed? Where does it go from here? And importantly, what should we in Congress consider doing as our next steps to respond to these potential shifts over the longer term? I believe we need to do everything in our power to protect our allies, and the United States from the Iranian threat. That means responding to proxy attacks in a way that defends our people and our interests without escalating conflict. That means fully funding our diplomatic and security efforts with proxy forces where proxy forces operate. And it means not only imposing sanctions against Iranian proxies, but enforcing existing sanctions. At the same time, we need a long-term plan to deal with the Iran proxy network. Tehran is playing a long game. 
Its supreme leaders favor strategic patience. Iran thrives on chaos and suffering. The best way to undermine the Iranian threat in the long term is to offer an alternative, a comprehensive and lasting peace that allows for real regional integration. I realize this is no easy task, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't make our efforts, and that is why the president is, and that is what the president and administration is doing. Uh, we all know the, the horrific uh, attack by Hamas on, uh, in, uh, in Gaza on, on Israel. We also know that part of that was to disrupt the normalization in the region. So the best way to counter these threats is for us to move forward with peace and normalization. It is critical that the United States continue to be a force for security and prosperity in the region. We cannot let Iran succeed in pushing us out of the Middle East or undermining the hard work of charting a path towards peace. With that, let me turn to my distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, certainly those, uh, those facts are uh, undeniable and, uh, that you've laid out. Uh, I want to thank the uh, witnesses for being here. We have uh, two very good witnesses on this subject with somewhat divergent views, but uh, certainly people that know this uh, subject. Uh, let me start by saying at the beginning of the Biden administration, uh, the president's Iran policy was abundantly clear, and that was an attempt to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal regardless of the cost. Uh, the administration chose engagement and impeachment over containment and isolation. Three years later, Iran is more emboldened and empowered than before, and the Middle East is in turmoil. Iran has dramatically expanded operations against the United States. Israel is decisively engaged against Iranian proxies in Gaza, and Lebanese Hezbollah is poised to enter the conflict. The Houthis are being fueled and directed by the Iranians, and Iran is moving into the Horn of Africa. Iran is building its proxy network in Sudan and backing the Sudanese armed forces. Threats are multiplying, and attacks against Americans are at an all-time high. While nuclear uh, negotiations have collapsed, the administration has failed to enforce sanctions, unfrozen Iranian assets in exchange for Americans, allowed Iranian drones and ballistic missiles to fuel Russia's aggression in Ukraine, and stood by while Iran uh, uses its oil and its oil reserves to fund uh, its uh, lifestyle. As, as Iran marches across the Middle East, the Biden administration has still not articulated a coherent Iran policy outside of the nuclear negotiations. It's time to change course. Iran is an enduring national security challenge and requires a serious policy that uses all instruments of national power. First, we must adopt a policy of containment. Iran does not, like, uh, does not think like the West, and it cannot be talked or charmed into a change of conduct. While the regime may make tactical concessions, we must recognize and accept Iran's longstanding strategic hostility towards the United States. Second, we must better deny the regime the resources it uses to support terrorism. It's really straightforward. We must enforce existing Iran sanctions to include stopping Chinese purchase of Iranian oil, and we must permanently freeze Iranian assets around the world. Iran has uh, earned a shocking $80 billion uh, in oil revenues since 2021. Its once meager exports at the end of the last administration are now over 2 million barrels a day. Let me say that again. 2 million barrels a day in the face of our sanctions. 
not only does this supercharge Iran's support for terrorists, but, lack, uh, but the lack of sanctions enforcement provides Iran with greater resources to support Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China with greater access to oil to pursue its dominance in the Pacific. Third, we must uh, restore deterrence. There have been, as the, as the chairman noted, at least 170 attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq, Syria, and Jordan since October 7th. It's clear the Iranian regime doubts Biden's will to impose serious cost. It's time to do things differently. We must dial up deterrence and force the regime to take notice. Fourth, we must demonstrate American leadership. Iran's uh, support for Russia, quashing of protests at home, and, a, and attack against Israel have forced many of our partners to rethink their approaches to Iran. We should be leading those efforts. Finally, we must better support the aspirations of the Iranian people. The Iranian people are disillusioned and at a breaking point. The lack of concrete response from the administration has missed an opportunity. I cannot overstate how bad policy has allowed Iran, Russia, China, and North Korea to move from being trans transactional partners to strategic allies with each other. This is a failure of American policy that will have consequences for years to come. This committee has a clear role in shaping Iran policy. We have several pieces of legislation in front of us, including my bill to better enforce oil sanctions. Many of these Iran-related bills, like the SHIP Act, have already passed the House, and I look forward to working with the chairman to push these over the finish line. In closing, I'd particularly like to thank Mr. Hook for being here. The threats against you and your family in connection with your past work as the U.S.-Iran envoy are unacceptable and underscore uh, the threat that Iran poses to Americans. With that, I'll turn back to the chair. Uh, let me thank Senator Risch. Um, we are in total agreement that Iran's intentions are against our national security interests, that we need to enforce our sanctions, particularly in the energy sector, and the importance of U.S. leadership. So I look forward to working with Senator Risch and all members of this committee on legislation uh, that addresses those important issues and strengthens our resolve against Iran's nefarious activities. I also agree with Senator Risch that we have two distinguished witnesses here today. I want to thank both of them for, for being with us. Let me introduce both of you. Uh, first, Susan Maloney, who's the Vice President and Director of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution, where she served as the Deputy Director of the Foreign Policy Program for five years. Her research focuses on Iran and Persian Gulf Energy. Ms. Maloney also advised both Democrats and Republican administrations on Iran policy, including as an external advisor to the senior State Department officials during the Obama administration and a member of the Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice's policy planning staff. Mr. Brian Hook, who is well familiar with the members of this committee, I appreciate very much the relationship I've had with Mr. Hook when he was part of the administration and we had a chance to talk about issues sometimes in this hearing room, sometimes in a classified setting, and I thank him for his service to our country. He's currently vice chairman of the Siberius Global Investments and former State Department Special Representative for Iran during the Trump administration. Prior to his appointment as Special Representative, he served as the Director of the Policy Planning Staff from 2017 to 2018. And from 2009 to 2017, he managed an international strategic consulting firm based in Washington, D.C. So we'll start first with Dr. Maloney. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members, it's an honor for me to address this committee today. 
As I noted, I'm Vice President and Director of Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution, but my views today represent only my own. Iran is a profound and enduring threat to American national security as a result of its nuclear ambitions, its terrorism and hostage-taking, its military support to Russia's war in Ukraine, and brutality toward its own people. One of the most valuable tools in the Iranian arsenal is the network of militias that Tehran has cultivated, coordinated, trained, and supplied with advanced weaponry. This adaptive, layered, so-called axis of resistance extends across the Middle East and around the world. Through opportunistic and flexible arrangements, Tehran has built partnerships of enduring value that provide strategic depth and insulate its government from the full risk of its militancy. Increasingly, Tehran supplies the means of production and modification to enable independent weapons manufacturing as well, providing redundancy, innovation, and deniability. Iran's leaders have exploited the shocking Hamas massacres on October 7th and the war in Gaza to elevate their own regional status, block normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, incapacitate and delegitimize Israel, and test America's spine. They also seek to precipitate American mistakes. Historically, Iran's most valuable openings have come as a result of strategic missteps by Washington or our regional partners, such as the 2003 invasion of Iraq, such as the invasion of Iraq and the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. For Tehran, the perspective advantages and rewards of its regional aggression are huge. Iran doesn't actually have to achieve anything. Chaos and pressure on Israel and the United States itself constitute a victory for the Islamic Republic. On that basis, the Iranian leadership escalated hostile actions by its proxy militias, resulting in at least 186 deaths or injuries to American troops. In the Iran-backed Houthis have launched at least 57 attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea, prompting the rerouting of international maritime freight traffic with significant delays and costs to the global economy. Additional threats loom large. Any miscalculation by any of the actors could ignite a wider and much more dangerous war. And in the long run, Iran's proxies erode governance and security across the Middle East. The Biden administration has been resolute and pragmatic in managing these threats. The rapid deployment of American military assets to the region, together with the tireless diplomatic engagement by President Biden and senior U.S officials, has succeeded in averting the wider war that Hamas hoped to precipitate. U.S. retaliatory strikes in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen have degraded militia capabilities and leadership and signaled to Tehran's partners that they will pay a price for their militancy. The calibrated use of force is having a positive effect. The pace and scope of attacks emanating from Iraqi militias has waned. The combination of deterrence and diplomacy has succeeded in preventing the eruption of a wider war. Still, Iran's militias are tenacious and adaptable, with a plentiful and inexpensive arsenal, especially compared with the costs entailed in shooting them down. So we must remain vigilant. The use of force alone won't eliminate the threat posed by Tehran or its militia network. And overreach or over-reliance on military instruments could undermine our objective objectives in the region, including objectives for stability and good governance in our partners there. Together with our regional partners, Washington must plan meticulously for the day after the war in Gaza. We must assure that, ensure that civilian authorities, independent of Hamas and other Iran-backed militias, are resourced for rapid and effective reconstruction and governance. Getting this right has been a high priority for the White House since October 7th, but the obstacles to effective implementation remain staggeringly high. We must also craft and execute a new strategy that addresses the totality of the challenges posed by Tehran to its neighbors in the world, contesting and containing 
maintaining the Islamic Republic's most dangerous policies will create time and space for Iran's century-old movement for representative democracy to gain strength. This can and should be a bipartisan effort. As noted, I've had the opportunity, the privilege to work with both Republican and Democratic administrations on Iran, and I believe there's substantial alignment on, about, around both the nature of the threat and the most effective tools for countering Tehran's malign policies across both sides of the aisle. And we need not go it alone internationally. As noted, the U.S. military response in the Red Sea reminds us that investments in coalition building require time and energy to mature, mature and be effective. But the crisis in the Middle East has laid bare several hard truths. Like it or not, the United States remains an indispensable player in the region. No other world power can surge military and diplomatic capability to manage a spiraling conflict and avoid the worst outcomes. And even if Americans are weary of our commitment there, standing by our allies and protecting our interests requires that commitment and readiness. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for your testimony. Mr. Hook. Chairman Cardin and Ranking Member Risch, uh, distinguished members of this committee, uh, thank you for inviting me to testify. I was last here in 2019, um, as Senator Cardin noted. And here we are five years later, and so I, this is a good opportunity to share some reflections uh, on where we are. In 2019, I explained that our Iran strategy had three objectives and that is to deny the regime the revenue it needs to fund its proxies. And we did that through oil and banking sanctions, principally. We defended our interests with the credible threat of defensive military force, but we also kept the lines open for diplomacy and engagement. To achieve that first objective of denying Iran the revenue it needs to fund its proxies, we vigorously enforced the oil sanctions, and we reduced Iran's oil exports by more than 80%. Uh, we did that while holding energy prices steady for American families. My office created an interagency team that tracked and countered Iran's oil sanctions evasion, and Secretary Pompeo and I tracked these numbers on a daily basis. The regime lost $30 billion per year as a result. President Rouhani said that our sanctions cost the regime over $200 billion. Now, why does Iran's oil matter? Iran spends its oil revenue on proxies who then kill and terrorize American troops. As Iran's funds dried up, during our administration, so too did the money to its proxies. In 2019, Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, publicly appealed for donations for the first time ever. Hezbollah officials told the Washington Post that their fighters are being furloughed, withdrawn from Syria, and having their pay cut. In 2019, Iran proposed a 28% cut to its defense budget, a 28% cut to its defense budget because of our sanctions. During the Iran nuclear deal, Iran's defense budget achieved record highs. As it, I believe that an Iran strategy without the goal of zero oil exports is not an effective strategy. The proxies that are the subject of this hearing all bank at the same address. It's in Tehran. 
that bank's deposits <clears throat> depend on oil revenue. And as the leader of Hezbollah said in 2016, as long as Iran has money, we have money. So to achieve our second objective of deterrence, when American interests abroad were threatened by Iran and its proxies, and we did not make a distinction between Iran and its proxies, we responded with targeted force. President Trump, supported by a unanimous national security cabinet, took Iran's most dangerous terrorist off the battlefield, Qasem Soleimani, when he was plotting to kill Americans in the region. The regime understood very clearly that we would always take decisive action when we are faced with credible threats to American lives. Now, looking to the present, I think this administration has shown how quickly deterrence can be lost and how rapidly diplomatic leverage can be lost and how swiftly a region can slide from stability into chaos. Part of this is because the U.S. sanctions on oil are largely unenforced. Exports have increased, oil exports have increased by almost 80%. This has netted the regime, as Senator Risch mentioned, this has netted the regime as much as $90 billion in revenue. That's since February 2021. On top of this, some of the deals that the Biden administration has negotiated with Iran have unfrozen billions more. With $6 billion in funds sitting in Qatari banks and as much as $10 billion in accessible funds sitting in Oman. Uh, A recent poll shows that a plurality of the American people believe that President Biden has not been aggressive enough in his dealings with Iran. I I believe that Iran knows that it can safely expand its axis of resistance because of the Biden administration's deep aversion to defensive military action. The Biden administration de-escalates to de-escalate. The Iranian regime thrives under this strategy. American troops do not. They have been attacked 165 times by Iranian proxies since October, and the United States has responded 11 times. This imbalance is untenable. Directly or indirectly through its proxies, Iran has attacked the United States, Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Pakistan, Jordan, Bahrain, and Iraq. In the Red Sea, The Houthis are using Iranian missiles, rockets, and training and intelligence to bring international shipping to a grind. Our military response to 45 Houthi attacks has failed to achieve deterrence. The Iran policy of the United States over many administrations has a lot of facets. It should not be oversimplified. I think... People can be very dogmatic on this subject. A lot of slogans don't get us very far. I've I've tried to present a respectful critique of the Biden administration's approach to Iran. I think that we share a lot, if not all of the same objectives, but I don't think the the administration has calibrated its means and to achieve its ends. And I think members of this committee can help lead the way in regime accountability. 
There are several good bills before this committee to accomplish this. The Bipartisanship Act has more than 36 bipartisan co-sponsors. This bill would target Iran's illicit oil trade with new sanctions uh, on foreign ports and refineries. There was a companion bill that passed the House in November with 133 Democrats voting in favor. There's another measure, the End Iranian Terrorism Act, which was recently introduced by Senator Risch. I think it's a smart approach to target Iran's illegal oil smuggling to China. That is, Chinese imports make up the majority of Iran's illicit exports. A number that was as high as 1.5 million barrels per day, it will creep up to 2 million. I think on the subject of Iran, both sides of the aisle agree on more than they disagree. Listening to Chairman Cardin and Ranking Member Risch, there is so much that we agree on, and I think that's the foundation of a very good and sound Iran policy. I think Republicans and Democrats are very clear-eyed about the threats that we face, and I think Congress uniting to send a very clear message in helping the Biden administration match its means and ends is the right and responsible course of action on our foreign policy. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. We'll now have five-minute rounds. Uh, Dr. Maroney, I want to start with your assessment as to what Iran's strategies are about in regards to its proxies and whether there has been a shift during the last four months on the Iranian strategies. We saw the loss of U.S. servicemen uh, in regards to the proxy attacks. The U.S. responded, and that response has resulted in a significant reduction in the militia's uh, attacks against U.S. interests. My question to you is we see concerns with this tit-for-tat in the northern border of Israel with Hezbollah, but it's prevented the civilian populations from being able to live safely in that region on both sides of the border. How much control does Iran have over the activities of Hezbollah in regards to these attacks that are preventing the civilian populations from being able to live in that region? Yes, they haven't invaded Israel, but it's certainly disruptive to the civilian population. We know that the Houthis in the Red Sea are creating havoc with the commercial shipping. We have an international coalition that is, well, they're, they're, the targets are not Israel, the targets are international. And we have an international coalition that is responding to that. How much is Iran encouraging those types of activities? And has their strategy changed during the last four months? So I would like to get an understanding as to what Iran's game plan is here. Uh, We've been told they don't want to get into direct conflict, but they certainly are are enabling a significant amount of challenges in the region that could escalate the conflict. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I think you've characterized uh, Iran's behavior and its motivations very accurately. Um, ultimately, what the Iranians are looking to do is to try to drive the United States out of the region. That's been their goal since 1979, and it hasn't wavered. But they adapt over time, they look for opportunities, and they often try to test the resolve of the American leadership. And so what we've seen since October 7th is the Iranians stepping up the tempo in hopes of creating more pressure from the from within the United States to pull American 
American troops out of those places where they are currently stationed. They have also sought to try to further delegitimize Israel and to put additional pressure on Israel um, and to create doubt within the Israeli public. They watch very closely the domestic politics, and they are seeking to take advantage of that as well. Um, They are, I think, they recognize that they're uh, outmatched by the United States and by Israel, and so that they're very hesitant to get into a direct conflict, but they will push the envelope because they presume that our willingness to push back is less than theirs, and our willingness, willingness to take risks is less than theirs. Um, with respect to Hezbollah and the Houthis, they have very long-standing and organic relationships. They are not uh, puppets of Iran by any stretch of the imagination. They have a st- considerable amount of strategic autonomy, but they also have shared interests. And I think that there's nothing that Hezbollah nor the Houthis have done that is uh, in any way opposed to what the Iranians would like them to be doing. It has been successful to date. I think in terms of how to secure the northern border of Israel, the diplomacy that Amos Hochstein is engaged in is the best prospect that we have to try to enforce the UN Security so Council. In regards to that, that's an area of immediate interest because he's trying to get Hezbollah to pull back and to have a safe zone so that the civilian populations can return to the border areas. Uh, how much is Iran influencing those decisions by Hezbollah as to whether to respond to the uh, actions to get them to move off the border, recognizing that Israel at any time could be taking kinetic action on their own? Well, Iran has an interest in trying to preserve Hezbollah as a deterrent against any future Israeli action against Iran's nuclear program. And so I think that's why Hezbollah has been both reluctant to get too far into the fight, as well as at least somewhat open to diplomacy under the current circumstances. The pulling Hezbollah back from the border has been a requirement since the 2006 war. They have not respected it. The international community has not enforced it. And if we're able to do so through diplomacy, then we have a better prospect of ensuring that Israel doesn't face the same level of devastating attacks from the north. Thank you. Uh, Senator Risch. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Huck, first of all, let me say your years and uh, Secretary Pompeo's uh, efforts uh, against Iran are legendary, and of course, thus you're suffering the consequences of it today with threats against you and your family. It's hard for me to sit here and believe that a country all the way around the world and uh, the nature Iran is that they can actually uh, uh, deliver threats to you and your family here in the United States, which, uh, which is just a despicable act. So thank you for your service, and thank you for what you've done. Let, let me ask, uh, uh, you, you know, as, as you pointed out, Things have changed dramatically in the last three years, and uh, with all of the money that's flowing into Iran now, are you surprised at all that they're uh, firing up uh, the proxies to uh, do the kinds of things that they're doing? Um, I I had hoped, in light of the hand that the Biden administration inherited, that that there would be sort of a greater continuity of peace. In in the last four months of the administration, we negotiated... um, in the last five months, we negotiated four peace deals between Israel and uh, Arab nations. I think that we had put Iran in a very defensive position, and we, had, we were a very good friend to our partners, and we were very tough on the Iranian regime. I think that's a winning formula for the region. And I think that the United States, over the last 20-something years, has struggled to find the right calibration 
the right, get the pendulum somewhere in the right place. And I think, I, I think, the, I think this administration inherited a pretty good hand. I think they put all of their focus on getting back into the Iran nuclear deal. And as a consequence of that, they wanted to create, I think, positive negotiating atmospherics for that. And that meant relaxing all of the oil sanctions that we had so vigorously enforced. And I think it also meant looking the other way on a lot of Iranian aggression. In, in light of the understandable objective to like deal with the nuclear problem, that's number one. That is the biggest problem that we face. Proxies are secondary. Um, I think my, my view on the Iranian regime is that you're more likely to get the deal you want with crippling sanctions. And that if you create this sort of positive environment, Iran is going to play cat and mouse with you for as long as you will let them. And then I think at some point the administration sort of figured out that they were not going to be able to get back into the Iran deal. There has been some increase in sanctions. I think the administration should have announced that talks are dead. By, by always leaving that door open, I think it prevents them from doing the necessary things on oil and banking sanctions that would dry up the revenue for Iran and its proxies. Hamas receives 93% of its, of its finances from Iran. Hezbollah receives 70%. Iran is, you know, the first check that Hamas was written was in 1992 when Yasser Arafat said that the Iranian regime gave them $30 million. In a very short time, that number went up to $100 million, then to $300 million. And they have trained thousands of fighters. Uh, the IRGC has done that. Money is the sinews of war. Iran understands that. If you don't go after the money, it's just not a, it's not a serious strategy. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, has anybody from the current administration consulted with you after you left uh, your thoughts as to uh, how, uh, how we might achieve what I think is the goal, as you noted, of everybody on this committee and should be everybody in this administration, the last administration. Has anybody talked to you about uh, how uh, they could r ratchet up uh, their efforts to match what uh, you guys were doing in the last administration? Uh, the, I, I, there was one meeting I had <clears throat> that, was, that was suggested by a friend, and I, I don't want to say who that was, but it was a senior person in the administration um, and we got together and had dinner and talked about it. Um, that was, that was, so there was one occasion. Thank you. Um, my time's almost up, but uh, Ms. Maloney, I wanted to uh, touch basis with you on something. On your website, there's a quote from you saying uh, that uh, we have a rare opportunity with Iran, and that is an Iranian consensus on the benefits of engagement with the U.S. I, I kind of... My feeling is your thoughts have evolved on this to maybe a little different position than, than what's stated there, but it doesn't, it doesn't indicate when you had those thoughts. Have, has your thinking uh, evolved on this? Yes, I think that there was a period in time in which negotiations with Iran proved that they could be fruitful in terms of getting concessions on real security risks that we have with respect to the regime. I think that time is now firmly over. The current uh, leadership within Iran has no interest in making concessions to the United States. So much of that has to do with the changes in the international environment since that time, their very close relationship with Russia, and the increasing reliance on China as an economic partner. Those 
were not the conditions that were in place at the time of the negotiation of the 2015 nuclear deal. At that time, we had consensus from both the Russians and the Chinese, as well as the wider international community, on the need to apply pressure to Iran in order to, to achieve these uh, concessions. We, are no we no longer have that international consensus. It's a much harder road to hoe. So are, are you now uh, in agreement with uh, those of us who believe that we need to turn the screw really, really tight if we're going to get something done? I believe that pressure will achieve results with respect to Iran. I think that it is more difficult because it does invoke other interests. We should be working with the Chinese to try to persuade them that it is not in their interest to see a wider conflict in the Middle East and that Iran is a bad actor, not a useful partner. But we have many other interests with respect to the Chinese, and I understand why the Biden administration was reluctant to try to go after Chinese firms as aggressively as it should have in order to try to achieve those results. I think, again, in the situation that we're in today, it makes very good sense to try to continue to reduce Iran's oil exports and its revenues. Thank you. My time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator, wait before we do that, can I uh, – I'd ask unanimous consent to – we have a letter from a group united against nuclear Iran, which I think is pretty instructive. I'd like to include that. Without objection, it'll be included in the record. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, would it be fair to say that uh, without Iran's financing, without its missile uh, supplies, uh, without its strategic support, uh, that uh, Iran's proxies uh, either would not exist, at least not as they are today, or would not have the reach and ability that they have today? Who would you like to... Uh, Bo both of you, actually. Suzanne? Absolutely, yes. Yes. Okay, so then, um, if that is the case, uh, and uh, reading from Dr. Maloney's written testimony where she says, the assumptions underlying Obama-era diplomacy towards Tehran, a conviction that the Islamic Republic could be persuaded to accept pragmatic compromises that served his country's interests, are no longer credible. And if that is the case, and I believe I agree with your assessment, uh, then the question of the financing, uh, which has been a big part of uh, uh, Mr. Hook's testimony, I think is incredibly important. Uh, the reality is, is that um, if Iran is dramatically curtailed in its flow of revenue, it has domestic consequences in terms of those who wish to see a change in their own country, and we have seen elements of that, which have been snuffed out and which the world has largely not embraced to try to create such peaceful change. And at the same time, it fuels its missile technology with the, the end of UN Security Council resolutions this past October. Uh, and it provides the resources and the missiles uh, to its proxies. <laughs> and of course, uh, of late, uh, providing drone technology to the Russians in the war in Ukraine, um, as well as continues to fuel its nuclear program, for which it has failed to meet to the IAEA um, safeguards and standards and inspection requirements. We know less today, at least through the IAEA, than we did before. So all of that brings to my mind, and taking the last point you made, uh, Dr. Maloney, about China, I think the Chinese have shown that they're happy to see conflict in the world. 
because if they, they didn't, they'd do something differently in uh, supporting Russia in Ukraine. Conflict for the Chinese, especially when the West is involved in that conflict, is in yours to their benefit. And I wish that they saw it as a, a, a global power to be part of an international order that would seek to avoid conflict. But I believe the Chinese, I believe Xi Jinping has a different view. If that is the case, isn't it time to do two things? One, internationalize, get our allies who were resistant to uh, joining us on a sanctions regime, to now multilateralize those sanctions, and two, to ratchet up those sanctions dramatically in terms of enforcement, including, including towards the Chinese, because that is the biggest spigot by which Iran is receiving huge amounts of money. Mr. Hook? <clears throat> Senator, I fully agree with everything you said. Uh, you can stop there. I'm just kidding. We have to have a little humor here at times. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So, um, it would be good if we could multilateralize the sanctions. The problem is that if we go to New York to the UN Security Council, China and Russia will veto that. And yeah, so, I'm not looking through UN because that's, a, that's, a, that's not going to fly. Right. So I think it has to be done bilaterally. And that is something that was a huge focus for me when I was in office, building a coalition of people. We were able to get a number of countries to designate Hezbollah as a foreign terrorist organization. We worked with, with uh, Treasury under Secretary Mnuchin, worked a lot with the Financial Action Task Force in Paris. And FATF imposed sanctions on Iran. We worked with SWIFT. SWIFT de-SWIFTed 33 Iranian banks. Uh, Mahan Air and Iranian Air, they fly all over the world. We worked with airports and governments to stop Iranian planes from landing. Well, those are in their all countries. examples of how you uh, ultimately bite off the, the flow of money. I think so, uh, but it's got to be. I'd helpful. like to get by my last few seconds Dr. Maloney's view on this. I think there's far more that we could be doing to enforce our existing sanctions, uh, especially with respect to the oil that flows to China. That's the, the lifeblood for the Iranian regime, and it has been what has enabled Iran to have the resources to provide to its proxies around the region. And finally, Mr. Chairman, I, I, with the expiration of Security Council Resolution 2231 this past October, uh, new restrictions on Iran's ballistic missiles and drones have to be implemented, which is why I introduced the Missiles Act, and I hope that as the chairman and the ranking member work towards develop a, a mutual Iran legislation that uh, the chair will consider that. Thank you very much. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Chairman Cardin. Um, Mr. Hook, I'd like to start with you, and first I'd like to echo the sentiment that was reflected by ranking member Risch. Um, your service as special envoy was exceptional. And I think a mark of that, unfortunately, is the fact that you have extraordinary threats against your life and your family's life right now. In fact, I just received reports from the State Department that there remain serious, incredible threats against Mr. Hook and his family. I regret you have to live through this, but I would take it as a badge of honor in terms of the effectiveness of, of, of the role that you played. And I want to talk about the role that you played. and the role that was played in the Trump administration because we took a very different approach than what has been undertaken today. We moved our embassy to Jerusalem. No war. We acknowledged Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. No war. We withdrew from the JCPOA. No war. 
We entered the Abraham Accords. No war. In fact, what happened? Iran felt the pressure. We kept their enrichment below 4%. We took the pallets of cash delivered by the Obama administration and Jack Lew himself. We took those pallets of cash to a reserve level below $8 billion. Hamas and Hezbollah were widely reported as broke. You mentioned the connection there. Somehow the strategy has changed. Three years into this new strategy, where are we? Iran is enriching now greater than 60%. Sudan, fallen into civil war. Israel, on October the 7th, saw the greatest loss of Jewish lives since the Holocaust. The Houthis have taken control over shipping in the Red Sea, driving up inflation here, endangering lives around the world, disrupting supply chains. And we have a situation right now where Iran-backed terrorists in Iraq and Syria are attacking U.S. personnel, and they've killed three U.S. heroes. So, Mr. Hook, I'd like to ask you, what has changed? What has changed in these three years? Um, <clears throat> I think what has changed is a return to the sort of the Obama administration focus on the Iran nuclear deal at the expense of regional stability. And I understand the premise that you need to focus on, on the biggest threat, which is the nuclear piece. But um, you cannot relax your vigilance and your deterrence against, the regi- against this regime. Um, and you're more likely to get the deal you want if you take a very strong approach, as we did, around financial sanctions, credible threat of military force, diplomatic isolation, and... You know, earlier when Senator Menendez asked about alliance building, Senator, when you were our ambassador to Japan, we worked closely, you worked closely with Prime Minister Abe to, you know, Japan has a 60-year relationship history, you know, with, with Iran. They were tough discussions, I'll tell you. And while Prime Minister Abe is in Iran, they blew up Iranian oil tankers. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a wake-up call for the regime. Uh, I mean, for, for, for the Japanese, they then started to get on their front foot and impose sanctions. And so I think it is vital to do alliance building in this regard. An Iranian regime with a nuclear weapon dominating the Middle East is in the interest of almost no country in the world. I, I cannot agree with you more. I can tell you... The conversations with Prime Minister Abe were quite difficult. He talked about the length, the decades-long relationship, but it was a simple question. You can do business with the United States, you can do business with Iran, but you can't do business with both. And as tough as it was, we got to the right solution, and we did isolate Iran, and we brought their revenues down, their, 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 their cash reserves down to below $8 billion. We brought their production down to below 300,000 barrels a day. And now, uh, with another person taking the job, a guy named Rob Malley, who's now under federal investigation, uh, stopped enforcing the sanctions wholeheartedly. What we see now is an Iranian regime with over $100 billion that, that have flowed back in. You, know, you mentioned Rouhani talking about the $200 billion impact that we had with our sanctions. They've gotten more than half of that back mm-hmm. with Malley forcing the administration to look the other way. Uh, it's a disgrace. Uh, We've seen the results in the Middle East. 
we've got to bring Iran back under maximum pressure. I agree with what Senator Menendez said, too. We need to get our allies on board with this. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Coons. Um, Thank you, uh, Chairman Cardin, uh, Ranking Member Risch, and thank you to our uh, witnesses today. Uh, I've just uh, returned from Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Oman, and Israel, where I spent the last week uh, in a variety of meetings. Senator Blumenthal joined me um, in Israel, Lebanon, and Jordan. Uh, I am very concerned about the um, increasing malign influence of Iran throughout the region. I think this has been a steadily growing uh, challenge uh, for decades, uh, and more recently, the attacks by Iranian proxies uh, throughout the region. Again, the Houthis in Red Sea, Hezbollah into the north of uh, Israel, obviously the brutal terrorist attack by Hamas, and the attacks by militias uh, in Iraq. Um, there have been no more attacks in the last three weeks since we took a fairly aggressive and uh, forceful set of strikes against Iranian interests in Iraq and Syria. Um, But I'm uh, concerned by the meetings that I had throughout the region with partners and allies, almost all of whom uniformly said, even those who were gravely um, concerned, alarmed about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, still did not want the United States to leave the region. So we are at a key point in Lebanon, as referenced by the chairman. There is some possibility uh, for a resolution Uh, to the Hezbollah uh, challenge in the south of Lebanon. In Iraq, there's active negotiations in the Higher Military Commission about the future of the U.S. military presence in Iraq. Even in Oman, the Switzerland of the Middle East, uh, there's boycotts of American businesses and products and protests uh, in the streets. Um, If you would both please talk to what you think should be our path forward in Iraq. Um, We've been there since 2014. Uh, as uh, the leader in many ways of Operation Inherent Resolve, the counter-ISIS mission. And there is an active debate uh, following our forceful strikes um, about our future in Iraq, and I'd be interested in your thinking on that and how we can most effectively contain Iran in Iraq. Uh, And I'd be interested in how you view the prospects for a better future in Jordan and in Lebanon um, if we continue to support Israel in its campaign in Gaza and if there is no change in the current trajectory of the prime minister's strategy with regards to Rafa. Please, Dr. Maloney, first, and then if you would, Mr. Hook. I think it's very important that we maintain our presence in Iraq. Um, it, obviously, it has come under significant pressure, and we have to work closely with the government and ensure that we're not taking steps that in any way undermine the stability of either the government or the overall social and political environment in Iraq. But we have important interests there in preventing the resurgence of ISIS and in ensuring that we're able to uh, protect both uh, our, uh, our, our broader interests across the Middle East by having small force presence in a variety of countries. So I think it is quite important that we do stay, but that we do it in cooperation with uh, Prime Minister Sudani and with the government there. Um, in terms of how we've, we uh, look to the future in the region, I think that the Biden administration has, in fact, invested an enormous amount of effort in taking forward the Abraham Accords, which uh, the prior administration actually produced, and really bringing them to the fruition of having, seeing a Saudi-Israeli normalization. That would be a, an absolute game-changer for the region. It would be um, fundamentally transformative uh, for the politics, for the economy, and for the security scenario. And I think it is... a 
critical piece of the puzzle of moving beyond this terrible conflict that is currently underway in Gaza. There can be no future unless there's a political and economic horizon for the Palestinian and the Israeli people, one that is based, grounded in real security and opportunity. And the only way to achieve that is through this kind of a breakthrough moment. Thank you, Dr. Maloney. Mr. Hook. Uh, I, th I, th I think on the subject of Iraq, um, I mentioned in my testimony the number of attacks since October, but I think you also know, Senator, since during, the, during this administration, there have been over 250 attacks in Iraq and Syria against American troops. And since October, we've responded 11 times. I think the attacks that we have done are necessary but insufficient. This is defensive military action. How would you account for the lack of any attacks in the last three weeks? Um, it's a positive development, but I just think that there is... What do you think caused that? Well, certainly our attacks. But I think that if we had established deterrence sooner, three Americans who were killed in Jordan may be alive today. Having been briefed on the underlying facts of the Tower 22 attack... I'll simply say it is a little more complicated, um, but I am very concerned about the vulnerability of our forces uh, in Iraq and Syria, and I'll more broadly agree that I think we have to restore a deterrence against Iran. Iran is one of the leading human rights violators in the world. The people of Iran deserve uh, a positive path forward. Uh, and to Dr. Maloney's point in conclusion, I couldn't agree more that if, if we can find a path towards uh, Israeli-Saudi reconciliation, recognition, that's the most important strategic um, advance, uh, building on the Abraham Accords that we could make. But the Saudi, the, the crown prince is very clear. There has to be an end to fighting in Gaza, and there has to be a path towards Palestinian self-determination. I only hope that the Israeli government can recognize the historic moment um, that we are at. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the witnesses for your testimony. It's been uh, most instructive. Um, and, uh, and, and I want to join my words with those of, of others uh, with regards to the threats against uh, Mr. Hook and against others in the prior administration as a result of taking a brave action to protect American lives by taking out General Soleimani. Um, uh, it is outrageous in my view that, these, uh, that the fatwa continues to be um, uh, heralded by, uh, by Iran and, uh, and, and how we can have anything other than a most hostile relationship with, with Iran when that continues is beyond me. Um, I find it unfortunate that we don't have a member of the administration here. Uh, I, I'd like to understand the logic for their current position, how it may have changed, what their uh, views are for going forward. Uh, it's, uh, it's helpful to hear from uh, experts such as yourselves, but you raise questions that really need to be responded to by the, uh, by the current administration. Um, I, I do understand, uh, Mr. Hook, you made the point that uh, given the administration's interest in getting a, a renewed discussion on the JCPOA, that they wanted to create a friendly environment and therefore uh, soften the, um, uh, the, the oil sanctions uh, to create that environment. But surely at this point, given what's going on in the Middle East and the attacks by these, uh, these various proxy groups, the administration is no longer trying to have a friendly environment with Iran. But what, what do you imagine accounts for the fact that we have not dramatically tightened our oil sanctions? Um, I, I don't understand what the logic could be for not 
engaging now in crippling sanctions against Iran and their oil revenue. And I'll ask you, Ms. Maloney, first, and then Dr. Maloney, rather, and, and then Mr. Hook. Dr. Maloney? We do have in place ostensibly crippling sanctions on Iran's oil exports. And as uh, Mr. Hook noted uh, at the outset, they were respected by the international community because of the recognition that it would complicate doing business in the United States. That's the power of the reach of the U.S. dollar. Over time, the Chinese began to test that resolve, to test those opportunities. They also uh, worked with the Iranians in a very sophisticated uh, set of uh, smuggling and evasion tactics. The Chinese have companies that are not banked in any way connected to the U.S. financial system, and so they are uh, less uh, less vulnerable to American financial pressure. And over time, this has created a vast network that has enabled Iran to uh, export illicitly in violation of current U.S. sanctions without a, a very easy way for us to impose severe costs uh, on the companies that are, in fact, importing. Thank you. Mr. Hook? <clears throat> uh, I made I had this sort of conversation with countries around the world, and it's what Senator Haggerty mentioned earlier. Um, I said that you can either do business with Iran and buy their oil, and buy the buy their metals, and buy their petrochem, you know, or or you can do business with the United States. Um, and any country faced with that choice will be the easiest decision they've ever made. They're going to side with the United States. That is the economic leverage we have that Dr. Maloney mentioned. I think the Biden administration hesitated to enforce the oil sanctions at a level that they should be until like the summer of 2022 when it became clear that the Iranians were toying with our negotiators. I think since then, the Biden administration has done some sanctions against WMD proliferators and human rights violators, but they haven't done it against oil. They have shown an interest in energy sanctions in the context of Russia, but they need that sort of level of, of sort of vigor and enforcement in Iran. And that is going to, I mean, look, Iran represents about 3% of the world's oil supply, and they maximum around 2.5 million barrels. We took them down to 300,000 barrels of oil in about 12 months. This is, and now China then, China is most of it. You have to drive up the costs in the bilateral relationship with China to get that number lower. That will, impose, that will impose an economic crisis on Iran, and it causes them to start changing their thinking around their proxies and their nuclear program. Uh, you, you make the point that, uh, that China is the, uh, uh, the, the major provider of the funds in purchasing the oil from, uh, from Iran. Um, cutting off a relationship with China and saying to China, hey, it's either Iran or us, is, is that what you're proposing, saying to China, we will shut you off? The challenge, of course, is that our, our economy depends on a lot of things coming from China. So this is um, – this has you – know, it's, it's one thing to say that to, to Lebanon or, or, uh, or other countries, but to say that to China is a very different matter. Well, Senator, I remember when I was in office – when we started our, our oil sanctions after we got out of the Iran nuclear deal, I'll just mention, when you're in the Iran nuclear deal, you can't touch the oil. And that is an enormous handicap. And so getting out of the Iran nuclear deal allowed us then to go after the oil revenue, which funds their proxies. And so when, <clears throat> when we were looking at China and its imports... 
We did sanction a lot of Chinese banks, but it wasn't enough. And I think that you can have, that there are many aspects to our bilateral relationship with China. This has to be a big part of it. When we started our oil sanctions, the price of Brent crude was 74. We lowered it to 72, even after taking off almost 3% of the world's oil supply. And I worked with oil ministers around the world to increase production to offset the loss of Iranian crude on the global energy markets. So you can zero out Iran's oil exports and still not have a shock, an energy shock, if you work with other oil ministers to increase production. Thank you. Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me just point out that we did have uh, a classified briefing with the administration on Iran not too long ago, and we also had the secretary before the Senate on the Middle East Secretary of State. So we've had opportunities to hear from the administration. Admittedly, they were in classified settings. And let me also point out that uh, there, there has been no sanctions removal uh, since uh, the Biden administration took office. In fact, there's been additional sanctions that have been imposed. There is an enforcement issue. There's no question about it. But I, I don't want to give the impression that there's been any sanction relief given to Iran uh, during the Biden administration. With that, let me recognize Senator Murphy. We also had two administration witnesses before the subcommittee yesterday on, this, uh, on this exact topic. Um, uh, Mr. Hook, um, I appreciate your service to the country. I believe you are a deep patriot. Um, but frankly, I thought your opening remarks sounded a lot more like a campaign speech for Donald Trump's reelection than a sober analysis of the situation on the ground in the region. Charitably, they were an attempt to rehabilitate President Trump's Iran policy that was a complete, total failure by every available metric. I wasn't coming to this hearing to rehash our policy towards Iran from 2017 to 2020, but I think it's really important to set the record straight because if this committee or the American public gets the impression that what President Trump was doing was working and should be brought back as policy going into the future, we're in real trouble. Here's the facts. When Donald Trump came into office, Iran was over a year from being able to achieve a nuclear weapon. By the time President Trump left office, that breakout time had dropped to months. When President Trump came to office, proxies of Iran were strong. When he left office, they were just as strong, if not stronger. This idea that Iran stopped sending money to Hezbollah during Trump's presidency is just wrong. $700 million was the annual amount of support delivered to Iran in the middle of Trump's presidency. That's what was being delivered at the end of the presidency. There were no attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq when Donald Trump became president. From 2019 to 2020, attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq increased by 400%. It got so bad that... Secretary Pompeo started to close down the embassy in Baghdad because it had become so dangerous. Attacks on U.S. forces raised to epidemic levels from the beginning of Trump's presidency to the end. The anti-Iran coalition 
wasn't strengthened, it was shattered. We had Russia and Iran on board with the JCPOA. By the end of the Trump presidency, Europe wasn't supporting our Trump policy, our Iran policy. They were undermining it. President Trump's policy towards Iran was a disaster. They got closer to a nuclear weapon. Their proxies didn't get any weaker. U.S. troops came under attack in a way that they were not prior to Trump's presidency. And our coalition that had been carefully built around the nuclear agreement, but ready to be used to go after Iran's ballistic missile program or their support for proxies, had vanished. Um, And so, Mr. Hook, let me just ask you about these metrics, and, and just I'll give you a chance to respond and tell me why I'm wrong. I mean, let me just give you four and just tell me why I'm wrong about this. Iran was closer to a nuclear weapon at the end of Trump's presidency than at the beginning. Iran's proxies were at least just as strong, if not stronger. Here's another stat. In 2016, there were five Houthi attacks against Saudi Arabia and UAE. By 2020, those attacks were averaging 25 a year. Third, Iran was threatening U.S. troops in the region by the end of Trump's presidency in a way that did not exist in 2016. And fourth, the anti-Iran coalition was weaker, not stronger. Am I wrong about any of those things? I don't think I am. I would say I can go through these four points. Um, On on the one-year breakout, um, when we left the deal, Iran then did what it is allowed to do when the deal expires. And we pulled forward the expiration date of the Iran deal because Iran was getting stronger financially during the deal. They were expanding their missile proliferation during the deal. They were increasing their aggression during the deal. And I think Iran understood that under the Iran nuclear deal, they had a green light to be expansive in the region as long as they complied with modest and temporary nonproliferation benefits. And so um, whether we did it, whether we did it in our administration or another administration did it later or we waited to expire, Iran is going to start enriching at that level. And what I would say is what does it say about the Iran nuclear deal that it is able to achieve the purity that it did when, when we left the deal? We did not... I think the Obama administration went into the deal with the goal of no enrichment, but they gave that away. And the right standard is no enrichment. Anytime we're talking about how close Iran is to nuclear breakout is the problem. Because as long as they're allowed to enrich, we're going to have this discussion. UAE has a, has a civil nuclear program. They don't enrich. That should be the standard. And unfortunately, as soon as you concede on enrichment, You're going to have other countries that are going to say, we'd like the same deal you gave the Iranians, we'd like to enrich. And so I think that's the problem. On the proxies being as strong, we never claimed that we solved the proxy problem. But there is no question, I'd refer you to the New York Times and the Washington Post. These are articles that said Hezbollah is weaker because of our sanctions. The Washington Post ran it. There were, there were fighters in Syria saying to the Washington Post, 
Uh, the golden days are over. Iran doesn't have the money that it used to. Fighters were being furloughed. You had a massive... Hezbollah had to undertake a fundraising drive for the first time in its history because Iran didn't have the money that it used to. And so I think the historical record presents a different picture of much weaker proxies. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Iran's proxies are a threat to American national security, and yet the Biden administration's appeasement first foreign policy has emboldened Iran, not only emboldened them, but enriched them as well. The world's leading sponsor of state terrorism has more money now in its coffers than it did before, and I think that's uh, what you were talking about. I think uh, the payments, for example, to um, Hezbollah have gone up from, or Hamas have gone up from $100 million to $350 million, and that's the point you were just um, making there, Mr. Hook, around the amount of money and why it's so important that we enforce these sanctions. I want to hit a, a, a topic, though, that we haven't talked about, but Iran is a theocracy, is that correct? Yes, <clears throat> Iran has been a theocratic regime since 1979. And so do you think it follows in that they don't necessarily share the same goals we would in, say, uh, a republic like the United States where we elect our officials? This is an administration and regime that is based on religious philosophy. Is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. And so um, they, they don't think like us? They do not think like us. They are a revolutionary, expansive regime that is committed by its constitution to death to the United States, death to Israel, and overthrowing Sunni governments in the Middle East. So is it naive to think there's any amount of money we can give Iran and they're going to be nice to us? Yeah, I don't think that money or talking nicely is going to get us anywhere with Iran. Right. I think, Dr. Maloney, you said their goal since 1979 has been to kick us out of the Middle East. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Right. So we have a regime that wants us out of the Middle East that thinks differently than we did, than we do. There is no amount of money that we can give them, and they're going to, they're going to play nice with us. Um, so let's ch- uh, change topics here a little bit. Um, in Gaza, uh, since the war in Gaza began, the Houthis have attacked, I think you referenced 45 attacks. Um, the military has shot down 95 drones and missiles. And, uh, of course, we've also seen the um, attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria have tapered off recently, but certainly that had been a big increase. In January, President Biden, when asked whether the strikes are working, responded, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. That was his quote. And then he said, are they going to continue? Yes. If this isn't emblematic of a failed exercise in deterrence and failed Iran policy, I don't know what is. It's also unsustainable. The defense munitions the U.S. is expending to interdict the Houthi attacks are costly, uh, more so than the cheap drones the, the Houthis are using. And to make matters worse, uh, the Biden administration's uh, overturned the Trump administration's designation of the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization and recently made it a specially designated terrorist organization. Um, it's only partially reversing course to designated uh, SDTG. Uh, and let's not forget uh, the Iran support that's going on with them. Mr. Hook, why did the Trump administration de- designate the Houthis as an FTO and do you believe the Biden administration should relist them as such? We delisted, I'm sorry, we listed the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization because they met the definition uh, under almost every criteria. 
um, according to the lawyers in the State Department. Um, I thought it was a mistake for the Biden administration to delist them very early on. It was one of the sort of the early policy decisions of the administration. They have since um, done a redesignation uh, of the Houthis. Um, that is necessary. It's important to do. You need to do other things. Uh, I'm very happy that we did because they are a foreign terrorist organization. So when it comes to deterring the Houthis, clearly the strikes we've been doing have not been doing that. They continue to attack the shipping, as you point out, in, uh, in the Red Sea. Um, what can we do to deter or establish credible deterrence? Do we need to start targeting Houthi leaders? Do we need to start providing direct military support to the anti-Houthi faction in Yemen? What should we be doing? The Houthis are a tribal militia that are fighting at a level entirely beyond their natural capability. And Iran has organized, trained, and equipped the Houthis for many years now. And we... Uh, I, I'm not privy to the intelligence that would drive uh, decisions like targeting in terms of assets or individuals that enable the Houthis to have shut down international shipping. Um, the Houthis did not shut down international shipping when we were in office. Um, we worked very closely with our partners to put the Houthis in a defensive position. It's not a, it wasn't perfect. But it is much better than what we have today. So I would strongly encourage the Biden administration to do um, the defensive military measures that will achieve deterrence. I don't think we're there yet. Great. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to each of our witnesses for being here. Um, Iran continues to stage proxy attacks on U.S. forces from Syria. Um, it's also emerging as a new front in the Israel-Hamas war. So should we have a more comprehensive strategy to address the threats that are stemming from Syria and to look at the long-term status of Syria and the continued opportunity that it presents for Iranian proxies to um, attack the U.S. from there? Dr. Maloney, I'll ask you to go first, and then Mr. Hook. We absolutely need a, a, a real Syria policy. We haven't had one for about a decade now under several administrations, and that's because right. it's, a, it's a pretty hard issue to deal with. Um, so talk, if you would, about what that Syria policy ought to look like. I think we have to be working with much more closely with the region. There has been an effort by some of our partners in the region to try to normalize with Bashar Assad, essentially um, overlook a decade of just horrific abuse of his own people. And we have not really been able to manage that process. We have not really been able to shape a better alternative to that process. Um, our approach has been to kind of see no evil, hear no evil. And that has left us in a position where Bashar Assad has been able to commit unspeakable evil. Never mind Iran and Russia there as well. It has been a, a very a useful staging ground for both the Iranians and the Russians, and it really provided the seeds of the strategic partnership between them that is now being played out in an even more horrific way on the Ukrainians. Um, you know, I just came back um, with Senator Murphy from a, a visit to Turkey, and we had a chance to meet with President Erdogan and talked a little bit about the potential to 
work together in the future in Syria, um, where obviously Turkey has interests as well. Um, Mr. Hope, can you speak to what um, that kind of coordination might look like and whether there, you believe there's an opportunity um, to, to work more closely with Turkey on um, the future of Syria? Yeah, um, all of our options in Syria are bad. And it's, it's a matter of choosing between the best and worst options. I mean, we're so late into this. Um, I think what is unfortunately missing, as Dr. Maloney said, it's unclear what the Syria strategy is, but the Syria strategy needs to nest within a larger Middle East strategy. And I wish President Biden coming into office had given a major speech with a Middle East policy and how everything fits together. I wish he had appointed an envoy for the Middle East, like President Obama did, like President Trump did. I also wish that he had put forward an economic and political vision between Israel and Palestine. But these three things haven't been done, and until you have a broader strategy, it's reactive. Right, I understand that, but I guess what I'm asking you is, what do you think that kind of policy should look like? What should it include and, and how does Syria fit into yeah, that? Yeah, it fits into it, Senator, and it's the right question to ask. It fits into it. I remember during the Syria civil war, Qasem Soleimani was, was overseeing 10,000 fighters in Syria. And, and, and that same network of fighters, many of them, are still available to be part of an right. attack against Israel, as you mentioned. And so uh, I am, I'm very glad that we recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, There are other things that we need to be doing to uh, the subject of this hearing is relevant because the proxies that Iran commands in Syria uh, need to be uh, need to lose their banker. And they also need to uh, I, I think our military can play a bigger role in driving the risk of miscalculation on the part of all these proxies. I think right now the proxies in Syria feel like it's a very permissive environment. Same in Iraq. Yes, I I was among those who was very disappointed when we withdrew our forces from northeastern Syria. Dr. Maloney, do you have anything to add to that in terms of a, a broader strategy that would recognize addressing Syria and the problems that it presents? I just did want to take the opportunity to point out that I don't think the problem of our Middle East policy is the lack of a presidential speech, and I'm not really convinced that success or failure rests on that uh, particular barometer, um, nor could one point to one uh, coherent speech during the Trump administration that would have set forward a coherent policy, an effective policy toward the region. I think, in fact, the Biden administration, with uh, the president's visits to Israel, with the Jerusalem Declaration, has, in fact, put forward a, a vision that is one that builds on some of the the few positives that the Trump administration actually achieved during its time in office, which were the the Abraham Accords. And if we can, in fact, um, continue to make progress toward normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, then we are in a much better position to deal with the challenge of a country like Syria. Thank you both. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, Thank you, um, Mr. Chairman. Um, As this hearing attests, uh, there's No doubt that Iran exerts its malign influence throughout the Middle East by supporting various proxies. Um, It's also true that these proxies have different origin stories and have different relationships uh, with Tehran. 
Uh, one of them is Hamas, uh, the terror group responsible for the horrific October 7th massacre in Israel. Now, Iran, of course, did not create Hamas, uh, nor does it exercise command and control over Hamas, but they do provide support to Hamas, primarily because of Hamas's despicable goal of destroying Israel and the overall goal of Iran of weakening U.S. influence in the region. I'm one who believes that we should have been doing more all along to weaken Hamas. We've talked about Iran today. We have not discussed the inconvenient truth of the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu himself saw it in his interest to keep Hamas in control in Gaza. Don't take my word for it. Uh, he told us this back in 2019 at a Likud meeting party, party meeting where he said, and I quote, anyone who wants to prevent the creation of a Palestinian state needs to support strengthening Hamas. This is part of our strategy to divide the Palestinians between those in Gaza and those in Judea and Samaria, end quote. Netanyahu. After all, so long as Hamas was in control in Gaza, how could anybody ask Israel to accept a Palestinian state that included Gaza and the West Bank? Good question. So Prime Minister Netanyahu and his extreme right-wing partners have embarked on a concerted strategy to weaken the Palestinian Authority, which recognizes Israel's right to exist, and to strengthen Hamas, which doesn't. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to enter into the record a, a piece that appeared in Haaretz in October of last year, a brief history of the Netanyahu-Hamas alliance. Without objection, it'll be included in the record. We also have heard a lot of talk uh, since October 7th about Qatari funds going uh, to Hamas. Uh, Ms. Maloney, isn't it true that those funds flowed with the concurrence of Prime Minister Netanyahu and Israel? Yes, that's true. That is true. So when I hear all my colleagues talk about this, Qatari money, please recognize that this was done with the consent and encouragement of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to enter into the record an article, CNN article, Qatar sent millions to Gaza for years, dash, with Israel's backing. Without objection, be included in the record. And Mr. Chairman, I'd also like to enter into the record a New York Times article from December of last year entitled, Buying Quiet, Inside the Israeli Plan that Propped Up Hamas, sub-headline, Prime Minister Netanyahu gambled that a strong Hamas, but not too strong, would keep the peace and reduce pressure for a Palestinian state. Without objection, it'll be included in the record. And Ms. Maloney, have you also seen the reports about how Prime Minister Netanyahu was informed about various sources of Hamas's um, monies kept overseas, including uh, some in Turkey, and decided to ignore those warnings? I've seen those reports. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I would like to um, enter into a record, a New York Times piece, again from December of last year, headline, Israel found that Hamas money machine, found Hamas money machine years ago, nobody turned it off. Without objection. And I want just to quote from Mr. Levy, um, who was the Mossad chief in charge of economic policy, who says, and I quote, I can tell you for sure that I talked to him, referring to Prime Minister Netanyahu about this, unquote. Quote, but he didn't care that much about it. The article goes on to point out that Mr. Netanyahu's Mossad chief shut down Mr. Levy's team. 
the task force Harpoon that focused on disrupting the money flowing to groups, including Hamas. So, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, as we watch what's happening um, in Gaza in the aftermath of the terrible Hamas uh, attacks of October 7th, um, and we try to bring that conflict to an end, and President Biden talks about the importance about providing some light at the end of this very dark tunnel by creating a two-state solution to provide security for Israel, including normalization, ultimately, from Saudi Arabia and Arab states, but also a state for Palestinians to live in dignity of their own. Let us remember that lengths that Prime Minister Netanyahu has gone to to try to prevent that from happening, including as all of these articles, in fact, attest, including going to lengths of strengthening Hamas to try to, in turn, weaken the Palestinian Authority and prevent those negotiations from going forward. It's well-documented. He always opposed the Oslo Accords. He's always been opposed to a two-state solution. His coalition right now, and it's in their founding documents, want the entire West Bank effectively annexed by Israel. So we need to go into this with clear eyes as to all the factors that are at play here. Iranian influence and malign efforts certainly being a factor across the Middle East, but it is a complicated story. And if we're going to find a, a way out that brings any hope to anybody in the Middle East and more stability, we need to look at this full story. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Certainly. Senator Barrasso. Thanks so much, Mr. Chairman. Thanks both for being here today. Um, Mr. Hook, so the Trump administration pursued a maximum pressure campaign uh, designed to choke off revenues that the Iranian regime used to fund terrorist activities. Uh, we now learned last week from the New York Times that a lot of oil has now been moving to Iran, from Iran to China, I think 59 million barrels worth over almost close to $3 billion. The tankers ended up in China. The money ended up in Iran. And you know, Biden administration said they're doing everything they can. I think they've looked the other way and completely been outplayed. So the Biden administration decided to pursue what I describe as a maximum concession campaign as opposed to a maximum pressure campaign. And it was aimed at appeasing Iran, letting Iran do more and more. So we had the, the crippling sanctions from the Trump administration, Joe Biden lifting sanctions. Do you believe the Biden administration's approach to Iran has worked or has failed? I think they have. I think they relaxed enforcement uh, in order to try to get back into the Iran nuclear deal, and I think that that was probably a bad gamble because uh, this the, the Iran nuclear deal started to expire when I was in office, and it's going to keep expiring, you know, in successive years. And so I know there was talk about a longer and stronger deal and a number of things like that but they should not have relaxed their enforcement as a tactical negotiating matter. They would have been more likely to achieve their results by continuing maximum pressure than by relaxing it. So along that line, and you use the word tactical negotiating approach, um, you know, what lessons will other adversaries around the world learn about the U.S. in the light of Biden's concessions campaign toward Iran? Um, what happens in places like Iran is a teaching moment in places like North Korea and Venezuela and Cuba and other governments around the world. And so I think that if we show weakness and unnecessary concessions to the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, it has ripple effects around the world. 
It certainly, I think, could signal to somebody like President Xi, after Afghanistan, after another war in the Middle East, that the United States uh, doesn't have the stomach uh, to do what is necessary to maintain deterrence. And so I would have much rather seen them continue the deterrence that we, when we came into office, it's clear from talking with our partners, with our Sunni Gulf partners, and with the Israelis, that we had lost deterrence against Iran, largely because of the Iran nuclear deal. It took a while to regain it. It's hard to restore deterrence. It's, you can lose it very quickly. And so I think the Biden administration was in a great position to pursue its nuclear objectives, um, but they needed to continue the maximum pressure campaign. So you mentioned President Xi by name, and there's talk of the concerns of uh, perhaps China's involvement with an invasion at some point potentially of Taiwan. Uh, does this also send a message that makes that more likely that uh, they'd view the weakness on behalf of the United States as an invitation for a, a time to go after something that they've been wanting for a long time? In a similar way of not enforcing our red lines in Syria, it, it just sends the wrong message to tyrannical regimes, um, uh, autocratic regimes that would like to displace us and our allies, whether that's in Asia, Europe, or the Middle East, or Africa. And so I think it's very important for the United States to be, as the old saying in the military goes, no better friend and no worse enemy. So, so then following up on that, talk a little bit about the, the, the extent that the maximum pressure campaign previously actually worked, succeeded in achieving the stated objectives regarding Iran's nuclear program. I think on the nuclear piece, it was, uh, the Iran nuclear deal was going to expire. And as I said earlier, we pulled forward the expiration date. And then we put in place what we thought were the standards for a new and better deal. I think if given more time, given the political and economic pressure we were putting on the regime, I think eventually we would have created an atmosphere to get a much better deal than was uh, negotiated under the Iran nuclear deal. I, I know for a fact that we dried up enormous amounts of funding for the Iranian regime and its proxies, and it, it worked. Let me ask a final question. Uh, September 2023, uh, the president's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, said the Middle East region is quieter today than it had been in two decades. A few days later, we see Hamas terrorists, Iran-backed financially, coming in to, to Israel. How has the Biden administration's Iran strategy led to chaos and instability throughout the Middle East? Um, I think it would have been much better off for the administration to not delist the Houthis, to um, have better relations with our Sunni partners. It's very, you know, when, when I was in office, we worked to organize not only our Sunni partners and Israel against the common threat of Iran, but we also did it in Europe and other parts of the world. And so I think when you come in to office and you alienate your Sunni partners and Israel and you then relax your sanctions against Iran, that is exactly the kind of environment that Iran thrives in. 
and you need to be doing the opposite. Well, th thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Hook. I understand your family and you have all been subjected to threats because of the role that you have taken previously in the previous administration, your f willingness to continue to speak out forth forcefully and truthfully. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Risch. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, Mr. Hook, I, you and I sat here and listened to Senator Murphy attempt to muddy the water here using some uh, unrelated statistics. And for those who he may have confused, let's you and I try to clear this up a little bit. Would you agree with me that the central cause of difficulties in the Middle East today is Iran? Iran is the principal driver. Number two, would you agree with me that Iran's ability to do that is totally related to its oil revenues? Yes. Number three, what did you have uh, when you left office after your attempts to constrain the flow of oil from Iran? What did you have it to when you led, left office? We took it from about 2.2 million barrels down to 300,000. What is it today, since you left office and the, and the Biden administration has taken over, what is their flow today? I think it's between 1.5 and 2. And that cash is being used to do what we've all been talking about all day in the Middle East. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, the oil revenue goes to the IRGC and to the Quds Force, and then they use that money to spend on its proxies to kill and terrorize American soldiers. Thank you. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Dr. Maloney, you said that Iran is using the war in Gaza to weaken Israel's international standing. I noted yester in yesterday's Foreign Relations Subcommittee hearing that uh, Iran's bloody fingertips are all over the region, both before October 7 and even more so on that day and, and since then. From your perspective, Doctor, is the, is the administration doing enough to engage with partners and skeptical nations to remind the world about Iran's destabilizing efforts in the region? I think the administration has become more vocal on that issue over the past several months for obvious reasons. I think that Iran's behavior is well known to many partners in the region and elsewhere. And I think that it is absolutely critical for us to continue to shine a light on Iranian aggression. Uh, what about uh, emphasizing uh, their support for Hamas, Iran's support for Hamas? Is this something where the administration is doing uh, enough communicating that? I believe that, again, it's very well known that Iran is the primary financial backer, that Iran has provided absolutely critical access to rockets and missiles and the means of production to Hamas, that Iranian support has uh, essentially helped to build the tunnel structure that has enabled Hamas to survive. Uh, Mr. Hook, I'd, I'd ask you basically the same questions. How would you grade uh, the administration's efforts to demonstrate uh, uh, the world to the world, Iran's malign actions and intentions. Well, uh, Senator, I, as I mentioned earlier, um, the leader of Hezbollah has said publicly, "As long as Iran has money, we have money," and that's the same for Hamas. Hamas, ninety-three percent of its of its money comes from Iran, and. We have to get serious about oil sanctions, banking sanctions, petrochemical sanctions, metals, all of it. And if you, if you undertake a focused, sustained, 
effort in that regard, you are going to dry up funding for Hamas and Hezbollah. And you're going to make Iran choose between guns in Damascus or butter in Tehran. That is the choice that we have to have them make. So it, it sounds as though right now that the, the grade would be for pass-fail. It, it might be failing, but uh, it's incomplete. So tell me, what can the U.S. Uh, be doing to better demonstrate uh, to Iran's proxies, many of whom thirst for international legitimacy, that uh, no such reward will come as long as they willingly refrain in uh, Iran's orbit, perpetrate attacks, and so unrest? I think it's a combination of maximum economic pressure, political isolation. I think we need to improve our military cadence um, to restore deterrence, which we've lost. I'm, I'm, as I was talking earlier um, with one of the senators, we, we have not had any attacks in the last three weeks. That's good, but we're going to need to keep up this tempo and increase it if we're going to protect the 30,000 American troops that are in the Middle East today. So hit, hit our adversaries more frequently? Uh, as a defensive military action, yes. As a defensive military action. Yeah, our troops are very exposed. Um, as I was saying earlier, since I think in November, you've had 165 yeah. attacks against American troops in Iraq and Syria, and we've responded 11 times. Yeah. It's insufficient. That imbalance is untenable. Well, I think we're also going to have to wrestle with uh, the, the legal implications of, of some of the military actions uh, that uh, are occurring and are being contemplated. This, is, this was a focus of, of the subcommittee hearing that we held yesterday uh, as well. So uh, when you are attacking Houthis, for example, uh, in response to a, uh, attacks they've made on partner nation commercial shipping, I think there are legitimate questions to be asked about whether or not congressional authorization uh, is required. Um, Mr. Hook, I, I, I believe that uh, imposing costs on Iran's terrorist proxies is, is just one necessary response to their continued attacks uh, across the region against the U.S. and our interests. Uh, we have to also actively seek to break their network this is in part requires the U.S. to force the leadership of these groups to question the risks they in individually and collectively are willing to take and so doubt that either their partners of convenience or their masters in Tehran are going to leave them holding the bag if, if, if they choose further escalation, whether it be in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, or elsewhere. Uh, Mr. Hook, how might you suggest that we act in this area? Iran has, for its 42-something uh, year history, um, operated in the gray zone, and they let the proxies do the dying for them, and they have been very effective at building out this Shia crescent, this axis of resistance that has imposed massive costs on the United States, Israel, and our Sunni partners. And so I think that if we are going to degrade and disrupt these networks in the gray zone, the Biden administration should announce that they make no distinction between Iran and its proxies. And anything that a proxy does, we will attribute agency, 
to the Iranian regime, and they will be held accountable as if it were a direct attack. And I don't think that Iran itself has, has endured sufficient costs directly. We have gone after things like the Biden administration has gone after Qatayb Hezbollah and some other proxies, but Iran is not feeling any of the pain. And until Iran, the, the regime, starts feeling it, they are going to continue to operate with impunity in the gray zone. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Hook, I am deeply concerned that the Biden administration systematically downplays Iran's aggression against America and against Americans. Sometimes they do it by downplaying the aggression. They act essentially as Iran's lawyers. Other times they simply hide information from Congress or the public. For instance, as Senator Risch mentioned in his opening remarks, you were personally threatened by this regime. As anyone here can see, you have a security detail because the Iranian regime is targeting you for the service that you've provided our country. It's not just you. Former Secretary of State Pompeo, former National Security Advisor Bolton, are also being targeted for assassination, as are other former officials. What Americans don't know is that the Biden administration has gone to great lengths to hide the extent and persistence of those threats, including abusing the classification system. They find public discussion of Iran's aggression politically inconvenient because it gets in the way of their appeasement of the regime. Americans understandably don't like their government sending billions of dollars to theocratic thugs trying to murder fellow Americans. For instance, the administration is required to regularly notify Congress of threats to former U.S. officials such as yourself. But when they were negotiating their $6 billion ransom deal last summer, they took the unprecedented step for the first time before or after of classifying their notification to limit who could see it and who could discuss it. I would like to give you the opportunity to comment on the significance of these threats. Uh, Senator, um, I, I'm not, I don't have access to the intelligence anymore. I, I also don't have any vi visibility into the process whereby the um, persistent threat determination is made. What I can say is that I'm grateful to the committee uh, for, uh, and to the Senate and to the Congress for its funding that provides protection for me and my family. I'm grateful to the uh, Office of Diplomatic Security at the State Department that provides that protection. I wish we were in a place that it was not necessary, um, but that is where we are. And uh, again, I'm grateful to this committee for its support on that matter. Well, let me say, Mr. Hook, I want to say to you and your family, thank you. You should not have to endure this for the, as the price of public service. And I think it is completely unacceptable that the current administration has flowed $100 billion to a regime that is actively trying to murder former senior U.S. officials. I want to turn, you were saying a moment ago, about how Iran has not felt any of the pain despite its actively directing 
and funding proxies. I want to talk about how the Iranian regime funds the proxies that are attacking Americans, that are attacking Israel, that are attacking our allies. During the Trump administration, you were part of the team responsible for imposing a maximum pressure campaign against the Iranian regime. That was the right strategy. That's how you deal with enemies that are trying to kill you. And you specifically targeted Iran's energy exports. That was very successful. The Trump administration, through focusing sanctions, was able to reduce their exports from a million barrels a day down to approximately 300,000 barrels a day. However, when the Biden administration came into office, they dismantled that pressure. Today, Iran's oil exports are roughly 2 million barrels a day, largely sold to communist China, and uncountable billions of those dollars have flowed towards the Ayatollah to be used for terrorism to murder Americans and murder our allies. Biden administration officials say they're doing their best, but they simply cannot do anything at all about this, that they are helpless to stop the billions from flowing to Iran to be used to attack our country. Is that your assessment? Are they in fact helpless? Is there nothing they can do to impose costs on Iran and to cut off their cash? Senator, um, the Biden administration is in a perfect position to announce zero oil exports of Iranian crude. And I would also say they should do the same thing on petrochemicals and industrial metals. And that would have a a measurable impact on Iran's funding for its proxies. We have proven that it can be done. Secretary Pompeo uh, and I announced the, the, the goal of zero, right? Even if you don't meet that goal... And we had metrics every day. That and, and can you explain from a foreign policy perspective, is there any national security justification for the Biden administration hating oil and gas production in America and relentlessly assaulting domestic energy production, but at the same time giving a theocratic lunatic a green light to mint money uh, and, and refusing to act against their energy exports? I think there is a, a way to impose crippling oil sanctions on the Iranian regime without driving up the price of oil for American families at, uh, at, at the gasoline pump. We've done it. We did it. It can be done again, and it can be done. Um, so what specifically should they do? And my time's expired, so, but please explain specifically if the Biden administration wanted to cut off the cash and impose zero oil on Iran, how would they do it? They would um, announce... They would explain to every country that imports Iranian crude oil that they would be cut off from the international financial system because of our sanctions. Now, China has ways to circumvent that, but you have to look for other pressure points in the bilateral relationship with China so that you drive up the costs of their importing of Iranian crude. Then you bring that down, and if you can deal with China and uh, some other imports that are leaking, ship-to-ship transfers... We, uh, we set up an interagency team that monitored every single act of Iranian sanctions evasion on oil. And we countered it. And so we were very aggressive and we were very successful. It can be done again. Thank you. Let me thank Senator Risch. 
Very briefly, uh, uh, we, we never talked about it. I'm not going to get into the details here, but one of the real things that we really need to focus on is not a drop of oil moves without it going into a ship. And that ship has to have insurance or the ship doesn't move. And those insurance companies are all international companies. Um, do you agree that that is a, a focus that we really ought to have as far as uh, trying to enforce the sanctions? Yeah, we did that. Uh, we made clear to every company that uh, was insuring Iranian oil tankers that they need to get out of that business. And we had a dramatic reduction uh, in that. You, you, what we did is we did a systematic analysis from production to export, and we looked for every single node in that process, and then we put pressure on it. it and and it insurance just, is a big part of this. Thank you. Thank you. So let me make uh, just one or two observations. Uh, first, Yes, we have to enforce our sanctions, particularly on the energy sector. And I think there is going to be consensus in this committee to strengthen those tools. And uh, China is going to clearly be a focus of our attention as to how we can better enforce the energy sector sanctions uh, in China. But let me just make an observation. Iran will find ways to finance its proxies to the detriment of its own people. The first priority of their budget is this terrorist activities and their military to the detriment of the welfare of the people of Iran. And then secondly, let me point out that what Iran's proxy Hamas was about was to stop normalization in the region, the expansion of the Abraham Accords, and that anything we can do to strengthen normalization in the region by giving hope for the Palestinians and Israelis for peace, to deal with the uh, moderate Arab states that we have relationships in the region, particularly the Saudis in regards to normalization with Israel. All that will undermine the capacity of Iran to have influence and its proxy to have influence in the region. So these are areas I think we need to work on in addition to cutting off the support for Iran through the enforcement of sanctions. So I thank our witnesses. I see Mr. Well, so Senator, I love that observation, uh, tying this all together back to normalization. When Jared Kushner was leading our efforts on the Abraham Accords, what became the Abraham Accords, we were working on the Middle East peace plan. It was very clear to us in hindsight, uh, and even at the present time, that unifying our Sunni partners and Israel against the common threat of Israel against Iran created the conditions. It was part of the conditions that enabled the Abraham Accords. And if your Sunni partners and Israel understand what you're doing on Iran, it increases trust and confidence. But if you have the wrong Iran strategy, it makes normalization very hard. That's the reason why we're having this hearing on Iran. Might I say one very brief remark as well, which is that um, maximum pressure has had a lot of attention in today's conversation, and it is true that the Trump administration was very successful in bringing down Iran's oil revenues and exports for a period of time. However, 
what part of the price of that strategy was an increase in Iran's attacks across the region on shipping and uh, an increase in Iran's uh, nuclear malfeasance. And we are closer today to an Iranian nuclear weapons capability as a result of the decision to walk away from the deal, even though the Trump administration actually had an opportunity to strengthen the deal, the decision was to simply scuttle it, walk away, and leave us with no real way to impose those kinds of constraints and restrictions on Iran's nuclear activities. I uh, whispered to Senator Risch that I thought we had two outstanding witnesses here for uh, this presentation. Not that I agreed with either of your total observations. In some cases, I have some strong disagreements. But I think you've really added to the debate, and your commitment to these policies and your commitment to public service is incredible. So we thank you. Uh, Mr. Hook, I also want to add my my deep concern for your safety and for your courage uh, in what you have been able to do in public service. Uh, we will stand by you and make sure that you have uh, adequate uh, resources in that regard. Thank you, Senator. Uh, the uh, committee record will remain open till close of business tomorrow for questions for the record. We've asked that if members submit questions that you would respond in a timely way so that we can have the benefit of your knowledge as we go forward uh, with this subject matter. With that, the hearing stands adjourned.